had nine Terminators with lightning claws. Spike scan initiated. I'm picking up a podcast arriving. Wait. Designation. Forge the narrative. Hey everybody, welcome to Forge the Narrative. My name is Paul, your host, Bailey Bell of Souls Podcast. I'm joined by Adam Camilleri. Hello. Red Powell and Tanya Gates. Hello. Hey everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Got a whole lot of things to talk about this episode. We also have a, a very special vendor spotlight segment with uh, Zach Hightower from Shadows Edge Miniatures. Y'all have heard me talk about his tufts before. Uh, got that spotlight in the middle of the show, uh, talking about a Kickstarter that he has launched. This is I feel good about the products. You, you know that his tufts are on a lot, a lot of my figures. It's quality stuff. Hope you like what he has to say and at least check out what he has to offer. In the kind of the theme of terrain and basing and that kind of stuff and effects, we want to talk about terrain and the differences between Warhammer 40,000 and Age of Sigmar. Yeah, I've been curious for a while. The the, necess- the necessities of terrain has only grown in 40k while I've been playing it. I mean, I came to 40k from the end of Fantasy and then the first year of AOS. And it was in Fantasy, it was like, yeah, cool if you got some, okay. Um, it didn't really impact the flow or the of the game. It was basically, did um, you get a neg two charge coming through or not? Yes, or do you have a really good forest you can post up behind if you're playing dwarves or two inches inside the forest? Yeah, or did you, you roll up? Did you roll up the freaking watchtower? You both have to go through that torture chamber now. But I was really interested to know how Sigma is doing terrain, how consequent, how important it is. Like in ninth edition, terrain is so. Oh, it's so quintessential to the enjoyment of the game. Like the amount of terrain we use has gone up like by a quarter or a third from every edition that I've been heavily invested in from seventh, to eighth to ninth. The density has gone up again and again and again. How's like third edition Sigma doing with terrain? Like, is it, does it matter? Is there lots of it? Oh wait, is it fourth edition Sigma? Third, I think it's third. third. Cool, cool, cool. I was just like tripping yeah. out for a second. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm keen to hear what terrain is like in Age of Sigma because I have no idea. Well, in a way, it's always player-placed. In the way that the GT packs are worded, whoever uh, is the defender sets up the board, and then whoever is the attacker gets to choose their side. So it's kind of an interesting mechanic there. In terms of what it does, it's not as important for sure. And I think that's for a number of reasons. One, there's just not as much shooting, and then the shooting that is really strong in the game tends to be quite mobile. So hiding from the really shooty things, or or if it's not mobile, it doesn't need line of sight. So hiding from the shooty things is not, it's not something you can always do behind terrain anyway. The cool thing about Age of Sigmar terrain is that some pieces are garrisonable. Um, so what that means is you get plus one to your armor save if your entire unit is within, but then line of sight is drawn to any point of the building. Um, and then when you're shooting out of it, again, you can shoot from any point in the building. Um, so it's kind of something interesting that we don't really see too much in, um... And anybody can garrison that, or, or, sorry, I mean, there's probably some rules around what can do it, but like, no, any faction can... Yes. Yeah, any faction can. More elite units with lots of wounds can't really do it. Not a lot of people do it that I've seen so far. I mean, I'm not 
like an expert yet. I've just joined, I'm doing like a league, like a competitive league kind of thing. And then I have my first tournament this weekend coming. Um, but so far I have not really seen too many people using garrison uh, rules. So maybe at this tournament, I'll see how it's done. And then it's just a little bit harder, I think, to get the benefits to your armor and stuff from terrain because every unit or every model in the unit has to be on the terrain. You can't even have one piece of, like, one base off of the terrain. Everything has to be in it to get that save, which is kind of difficult sometimes based on what your terrain looks like. But do, do but you, yeah. don't, you don't think that people, like, gear their units towards that? It's more like... No, just not at if, all. if it happens to happen, it happens. Yeah, yeah. And I think, too, because a lot of times the objectives and stuff are like there's not as much terrain and it tends to be farther away from the objective. So a lot of times if you choose to garrison a unit, you're not going to be holding objectives. Hmm. So yeah, it's just a little bit more difficult, I think, to actually use the terrain rules. And it would be really cool to, to make it more useful. Like in 40 K I mean, you can sort of hide a lot of the, the magical abilities have line of sight as, um, as like part of how they're used. So you can kind of, I guess, hide away from from different wizards and stuff but yeah in general i haven't seen that many people actually use terrain in any sort of meaningful way in age of sigmar you can't have like a piece of terrain define a matchup so to speak well and i think from what i've I've played around with i think that the balance to that really i mean i think it's good i think that there's a purpose for that and why it's not so critical is because you think about it with the defender being able to set up the table mm. and the attacker just getting to choose the, the edge, it doesn't become this fulcrum that, I mean, in a lot of cases, imagine in 40K if one person got to set up the entire table. I was literally oh. just thinking that, like a kid in a candy store, like, ha, you are not shooting a thing, tower player. Um, right. So the yeah. way to, to mechanically, you know, as a war game, the way to mechanically kind of prevent that from being a make or break thing so that you don't just lose in terrain deployment, essentially, is to just make it not as big of a deal. And mm. I think that that makes sense. I think that that's, that is perfect in a lot of ways. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. How many pieces does like a... Sorry, it might not might not be something you can speak to, Tanya, but a tournament standard table, like, you know, a basic ITC or WTC table uh, for 40K has a phenomenal amount of pieces. How many pieces would you say, like, ends up on a standard Age of Sigmar board? Uh, for 2,000 points, it's recommended to have eight pieces. Yep, so it'd be two pieces per table quarter, essentially, right? Y- yeah, about that, uh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that seems pretty reasonable. It's, a lot of those are the, what, the the G-Dub Ruins, right? Well, they're, they're G-Dub Ruins, which which usually are like a, what, a 10 by 6 footprint, inch-wise. Yeah, I'd say that the pieces are probably about the same size. Mm. And, and you Honestly. mentioned, like, both of you mentioned, like, or at least Adam, like, more terrain. Do we have more than 25% of the table covered now? That used to be kind of the, the, the metric to go by. So in... in as a, at a tournament level in 40k, WTC tables 100% have probably some of their tables have I'd say more than 50% of the table. You know, up to 50% of the table is mm-hmm. is covered um, or influenced by, which is interesting a difference. Like, because um, in 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 40k, a lot of the time it's not the the it's not the size of the piece; it's the influence it gives the player. Like 20 Sangard in a ruin in the middle of the table is so much more impactful than 10 intercessors in a ruin in the middle of the table. You know what I mean? And I was, I was the next question I was going to ask Tanya: Does the 
does the lack of shooting um, mean that you want less or you want more? More as in it gives you more interplay, more reasons to garrison, more uh, make, makes it more interactive to, to have a purpose? Or is the fact that there's not much terrain just means that if you were to play on a bowling ball, it would, you'd still have an enjoyable time? Hmm, that's a hard question. Um, so I play two factions. One is just a bunch of little greebly things. And then the other one is like giant base monsters. The best and, voice. <laughs> that's right. Your voice too. And I like the challenge of having that much terrain because it makes deployment a little bit more difficult, right? Like if you just set up across from your opponent with no terrain and no obstacles and nothing like that, like how to explain it you would just you would just look at their army and be like okay that's the weak point right but mm-hmm. having the pieces on the table means you have to think well how am i going to get there right i have to navigate these pieces with my giant models uh and still be able to get objectives and still be able to hit the line where i want to hit it and yeah i think that makes there a lot of is sense. there is a lot of shooting like the shooting i find that is in the game is incredibly powerful so you do see it like caradron overlords are they could be a devastating right and on top of that the lumineth have these archers but like i said the caradron they just like deep strike every turn so they can just shoot whatever they want and Mm. then the archers they have two attack profiles and one doesn't need line of sight so they got that sms them sms arrows right there (laughs) yeah so (laughs) if there was more devastating shooting at mid-range that wasn't on a super mobile kind of platform, it definitely would come into play more. You just don't really see a lot of like mid to long range shooting in the game. It's all really, really close. Or again, it's on a mobile platform. Does that speak to maybe the the player base of Age of Sigma that they prefer? Well, they're playing it because it's more of a melee based game. There's been like, I feel like, 40k though with the the change to the mission structure about the holding objectives mostly outside of your deployment zone and stuff has become much more of a melee game and that's by dint of the terrain density as well but I, yeah, that's probably something to do in reflection in, a, in like a at the end of this edition or whatnot overall though now having played a fair bit of both games mm-hmm. which do you pref- which do you prefer mm-hmm. the terra- terra- terrain system wise do you prefer it to be all about the terrain like the game can only be enjoyable if i have xyz terrain or do you prefer like little bits and pieces it's going to change the movement phase for me i need to take it into account but it's not going to really change the outcome honestly i do prefer the terrain in 40k but I prefer the missions of Age of Sigmar. So if Age of Sigmar could bring in terrain rules that were more akin to 40k, I think it would be even more enjoyable. Yep. Um, but I don't like to wish list. I kind of just like to look at what I have and, and enjoy what I have. You just know have what I mean? it be and then figure out the challenge mm-hmm. that it presents. But I was thinking, like, it's kind of like in, in Warhammer 40,000, you expect everything to have laser guns and missiles and well, actually, I, I find it, you know, kind of almost silly that we just don't, you know, bomb everything from orbit or send, you know, <laughs> a, a, Terminatus. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, or send something from a galaxy away to do the fighting. <laughs> like everything mm, ends up boarding action. They're called Tyranids. They send yeah. them from a galaxy away. <laughs> but, but everything, you know, you expect everything to have this, like a bunch of long, a weaponry of range weapons attached to it. And and so presents its own kind of weird aesthetic that you kind of have to contend with. But in Sigmar, I was just thinking while as you were having that talk, is that it's more on theme and expected that everything has shorter to medium range weaponry. Like how 
you know, how long in, in when you're talking about in the scope of a table, the, you know, a table size, can someone shoot a bow relative to, you know, a battlefield size? Mm-hmm. So, so it feels like, like maybe it's more intimate. Mm. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. And also the just the artillery in general in Age of Sigmar is quite underwhelming across every faction. At least every faction that I've come across so far. I think if they could find a way that makes artillery better but still balanced, I do actually think that the terrain would be more important to you. But a lot of artillery has one shot, so you're just like, meh. <laughs> it's it's mm. fine. I don't. I don't need to hide from it. Fling it's it out and hope for the best. Yeah, it's probably going to miss anyway. If it doesn't miss, and it does, and it doesn't, like if it if it misses, doesn't miss, and it wounds me, and then I fail, and then I fail my my ward save or whatever, then I'm in trouble for sure because they tend to do high damage. But yeah, in general, they just have this lack of number of shots that makes it like you see one on the table and you're just like, eh, doesn't there's, matter. There's this whole thing in in Sigmar where you know this. The, the hero phase and what interactions and things that happen that are radically different than in, in Warhammer uh, 40,000, which will be interesting because I do want to talk a little bit about horse heresy in, in a bit and the reactions that one can do. But this, I, I just think that kind of the, the balance of, of Age of Sigmar is that it takes into to account a little bit of the theming, but then the fact that people will eventually get mixed up and in these areas of influence or, or like a scrum mm. a bit, but not in the way that it used to be. Like it used to see everything just kind of swirl towards the center in previous editions. And now this seems to be really, is tactical the right word? Red, help me out. Yeah, sure. I mean, ta- yes. In, in what <laughs> you're trying they to say. Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> there, there are objectives, you know, there, there are things to do around the table. And so you create these, these scrums and areas of the table, but it is, it eventually gets up close and personal a lot more often. And, and there are less of those devastating like blowouts, like you might see in Warhammer 40,000 from, if you were playing on, you know, table, what do we call them? Table bowling ball mm. <sighs> against, you know, an army that, that is one of those armies that everyone expects to have all the, the guns all over them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, even if you think about it, I guess the terrain is important because you can position your big, like it is kind of important for shooting units because it sort of forces your opponent to decide their line of attack. So if you put a big blob of archers in between two large pieces of terrain, your opponent's not going to be able to attack from those sides. It's going to have to get like, if, if there's one on each side, you're going to have to go frontal assault, which you could probably place something big and tough in front of it to, you know, countercharge or whatever, or you have to find some way to come in from behind. Um, so like it comes into play more for movement, like move blocking and screening and things like that. But like I said, like I'm, I'm no expert yet and maybe I'm wrong. Like maybe there are some factions that really do garrison quite a bit and, and use all of the, the rules of terrain. I just, I haven't come across it yet. I've, uh, I've been on a fun tangent here in the background. Just um, because as soon as you mentioned, like, uh, you know, how far does a bow shoot? I was like, how far does a bow shoot? So (laughs) everyone everyone sit down. Here are some facts about the bow. (laughs) Like real world bow is what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Because I was just like, well, how big is a battlefield supposed to represent? How big is a six by four? Like, what does it represent? That are 24 inches? Like, what is, you know, if if your bow shoots 24 inches, what does that kind of represent? Um, So modern compound bows, like, 
like world archery conditions can shoot up to uh, 283 meters or 934 feet. That's a compound that's, bow with like technology. That's, that's not like exactly. Just, what is it? So, what is a longbow? Then I went down to uh, longbows, and it says a trained archer could shoot 12 arrows a minute. Some people suspect they could shoot up to double that in the right conditions, and it would wound at 250 yards, kill at 100 yards, and penetrate like plate or scale armor at 60 yards. At the Battle of Agincourt, 1,000 arrows were fired every second. That just shows you how many they were putting out and why that went so well. But yeah, armor penetration at 60 60 yards. So like, they're not quite ready to have a picnic with you close enough to like, you know, see the whites of their eyes, but that's pretty close. I mean, that's, we've we've talked about this before, right? Like the, the setting of the battle, like is this, is the game you're playing, is it the pivotal battle amongst you know everything else that's going on on the the rest of the battlefield or is it the entire battlefield and is it is that you know one and the same is that everything that's going on and i think that there's a lot to that in the scale of the game because when we talk about what that really looks like and and you know what you're laying out here like we just have to suspend the the disbelief in certain regards because there's no way that the the way inches and measurements work out that it's going to play out to um true scale a, i guess it was just a it was just a fun thought exercise and in my head the equation came down to uh, a bolter can kill you at 24 inches a bow you most bows in, in fantasy and i'm assuming in age, age of sigma now are 18 to 30 or 18 to 24 24 you being maybe the usual so maybe that's representative of about 60 yards in real life you know is, is that, sure. that that might be the closest we get and you're right that is an extremely long bow to a string but boom we can move on now i'm done <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, it's not a bad exercise, right? I, I think it. I think it is a good exercise to be aware, cognizant of how the game has essentially moved beyond that. If that makes sense, mm. uh, that is very true. What we're doing, right? I, just, so, I think it's part of the the theming choice for Sigmar, and it's kind of you know thinking about it from this angle that it, it plays out that way. I don't think it's by accident. Honestly, I feel like I feel like Sigmar is more. What's the word I'm looking for? It's more aware of how the armies thematically should play, right? Like, I feel like sometimes in 40k, the shooty armies shoot, the fighty armies fight, and the caster-heavy armies cast. But outside of that, there's not really a lot of mechanics that really differentiate between, like... Uh, this is probably a bad example just because one has a, a new codex and one doesn't. But, like, in terms of, like, Tau and Guard, like, Guard has out-of-line-of-sight shooting, so does Tau, you know? Like, Guard have a lot of uh, mechanized way of delivering that firepower, you know? Like, they, they both do. Um, yeah, I don't know. But, like, when you go into Age of Sigmar... Like, they each play so differently. Um, so, like, in Death, which would be, like, a super faction, right? Nagash's super mm-hmm. faction. You've got all of these armies that have ways to bring things back from the dead. But beyond that, all of these armies also have unique characteristics that make them feel very thematic. So I'm playing Night Haunt, which are, like, the spooky bedsheet ghosts. And yes, they can bring their models back from the dead, but they can also do a lot of uh, like teleportation shenanigans, right? They can just Mm. pop up uh, and in the same turn, come back down somewhere else. 
this is how I've built my list specifically is to sort of take advantage of those mechanics. And I think that that really plays well into the whole idea that these things don't have real bodies, right? Mm. Like they're not bound to the earthly plane. They, they move around in other ways. Whereas the Ozark bone reapers are even tougher in a way, right? They are bone constructs. They are still made out of the stuff of the earthly plane. So they don't get that option. They don't get to just phase out and then phase back in. I think you make a good point though, because like 6th edition, 7th edition, 40k, and to a wider extent 8th edition as well, there was a lot of homo- there was a lot of homogenous factions. There were like every Space Marine faction kind of felt like every other Space Marine faction, with the except of you know White Scars, um, which was the only reason White Scars stood out in Seventh Edition is because it was the only Space Marine faction that didn't feel like Space Marines. It felt like Eldar. But yeah, were you a shooty army? You you felt like all the other shooty armies, and that is fair. I do think Ninth Edition has taken some great strides to making things feel like they th- should thematically play. My two best examples there would be the Death Guard Codex and the GSC Codex. Not the most powerful of codexes but thematically they have the layers the enjoyment the player base uh, are attached to those so i mean we call it out on the thursday show every week paul like there there's death guard players in droves still despite having to, to, uh, no offense one of the weaker of the ninth edition codexes um and they play them because they love them because they feel like death guard and they feel like they should in their heart when they play them on the table uh, you know what? I am going to agree with you on that because I feel like the Necron Codex also still feels like it does. That's, yeah, that's how Necrons should mm. play. Um, about to rev red up, floating loose. Let's pull the rev cord. Come on, red. Nope. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> he's just he's storing it up. He's like creating his spirit bomb of anti atom energy. It's going to be great. Um, uh, I don't know. I just I I think that having all those really high AP weapons and a bazillion shots, and then having mm-hmm. that mechanic where they can stand back up again. I don't know. It feels really thematic. It does. To, to yeah, I, I do think they got the the feel. I, I see, I miss the, the get back up portion of Necrons. Like, I don't know, you may have been, not been around, but that's what they used to do. They used to be, it used to be called, we'll be, we'll be right back. Like, we'll, we'll be back because it was evo- evoking Terminator, of course. We'll, we'll be right back. I like that. We'll be right, like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> be right back. Don't, I'm going to save my down. seat. I'll be right back. I'm going to lie down. We're from our sponsors. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna lie out to, for the rest of this phase, and then I'll be right back. Um, which is essentially how it worked, and now that's kind of how it works again. And I love that feel of it. That feel is cool because then, as the player, me, I'm playing against Necrons. I feel like I'm making inroads. Like you know, I'm the general on my battlefield. I'm like, yes, we're getting some work done. And then the Necrons are like, sorry, bro, you got like a third of the work done. You thought you did. As we put ourselves back together, um, it's it's really it feels really good. I wish it was more powerful. I wish that book was more powerful. Or actually, or all the opposite, actually. I, I, I'm going to flip that. I wish every other book was the same as on the same power as Necrons, because I think that would be a much more interesting game than the kind of one-upsmanship we've had book to book to book in 9th edition. There we go. That's been a nice little jaunt around some terrain stuff. And uh, while I'm going to use this as a way to segue into a little bit of Horace Heresy talk before we cut to break, and I mean just a little bit because I want to talk about the fact that that game is still played on four by six tables. Yep. Yeah, it is. And I like it. <laughs> you think it's that much of a difference? I do. I actually don't like the... 
I, I'm, I mean, I don't hate the smaller the the table shrink now. It it was actually surprisingly jarring when it first happened. I didn't think it was going to be. I don't think it was going to be that impactful. I, I whatever. We lost a couple of inches. Who cares? Let's move on. Let's play the game. Um, but for the first like probably a couple of months of ninth edition, albeit I was playing, you know, in between pandemic shutdowns, so it was pretty awkward. But I find it it, it messed me up. It messed up my flow. Like. I, I thought I had one more turn before they hit my lines. That's, that's, I the, that's I, what I love about it because uh, that yeah, one I've, turn has now been, you know, it's one. The game's one turn shorter, and I need yeah. to move one turn shorter. And in my head, when I'd look at tables, I'd be like, "Yeah, I reckon there's a spot I could drop my scions over there." And then I go over there, I'm like, "Ah, oh, those inches are gone. I can't do it anymore." You know? <laughs> um, yeah. Well, that sucks. Uh, and so uh, it really threw me off at first. Uh, as a guard player, as soon as I was as soon as I heard that they were cutting the table down, I was like, "Oh man, that's like my advantage in this game is my long yeah. range firepower." And now it Distance. doesn't mean as much. Yeah, like range seventy two should just say table on it. it should say range <laughs> table. Um, <laughs> it is weird they bother to put in like you know three hundred and sixty inches. I, see, I love that. I love that element because it's just like so ludicrously huge. Like a basilisk has got 120 inches. Well, it's, it's endless jokes. Like I'm bombing two <laughs> tables away. Ha ha. Yeah. Because you know? who? I mean, you want to do it, and I, 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 I do that. I used to do that. Like <laughs> me and my mate would be talking across, like is a seventh edition or early eighth edition stuff, and I'd be like, "Are you losing, mate?" And he's like, "Yeah." I'm like, "I'm going to shoot you with my manacle this turn." He's like, "All right." <laughs> so I shot him with my, I shoot him with my manacle. We're both losing the game, so whatever. I got one more missile on my manacle. <laughs> I was just gonna shoot it at my mate. Might as well make table. a memory instead of an, <laughs> exactly. another another embarrassment. <laughs> exactly right, mate. Exactly right. So with Horus here, see, Age of Darkness box is amazing, absolutely amazing. Yes. Uh, Games Workshop provides us with the rule set and the, the models, and the plastic Spartan is the exact same size as the resin Spartan. Almost, I mean, it's one for one. I didn't get all down to the nitty gritty, de- like every little detail comparing it to the other two, but I can tell you it's the exact same size. Well, have you met the Horace Heresy like player group? If it was like an inch shorter, they'd be right in the street. A millimeter. Pitchforks. Yeah, <laughs> no, but it is, I've seen, I've, I haven't seen one in the in the flesh yet, but I've got some, I know some people who have them already, uh, or they've they've held them or whatnot because they they visited Warhammer World or whatever. They're like, this is this is legit amazing work. It went together very smooth. You know what? It's always very stressful when you're putting together one of those large models, and when you like put the tracks onto the hull, you just hope everything lines up right, mm. lined up like butter. Undoubtedly, like I mean, have they set a foot? Have, have they really set a foot wrong, miniatures wise, in like the last like three or four years? Apart from the other terrain, no. Um, but I yeah, think they, the closest really you have... get is like the sometimes the instructions don't always line up to exactly line what up. you're that's, supposed to. Do. Yeah, that's fair. Which I feel like that's just uh, somebody printed out the pages in the wrong order or whatever, or the intern was doing the collation that day. Um, you know, it's, it's, that's fine. The kit, the kit's good. The actual like sprues and the kits, they're amazing. How do you, have you put the, um, I, I mean, this is the question I've been asking everybody who's seen the kits. Um, are the Corvus, the Mark six armors bigger than firstborn or firstborn 40 K or Horace heresy, Mark, Mark threes, Mark, Mark two. I haven't put them side by side yet, but I will because I, I mean, so I played and I played blood angels. As you might suspect. Ah, <laughs> oh, jeez. 
shocked news to me and, branching out guys and i took a lot of jump you know jump assault squads our troops so took a bunch of those let me say what i forgot this is a cautionary tale to any would-be uh horse heresy age of darkness generals out there is that sometimes you get a little too comfortable in this edition of warhammer 40,000 that we play oh man here we go keep where, going sorry i already see where this is going where everything yep. can wound everything else yep and then when you're thinking, like, I just brought a bunch of lightning claws, and I gotta fight these tanks. And yeah. yep. How about that? <laughs> Let alone running into a freaking Leviathan Dread or something. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> did you br- are you an infantry squad? Did you bring melter missile? Did you bring melter grenades, melter bombs? No, don't charge the Leviathan. As simple as that. Simple. So a few simple. things here. So, of course, you know, uh, Blood Angels can take uh, melter pistols. You basically upgrade a plasma pistol to a melter pistol. So I took a few melter pistols and I took a Mortat with double melter pistols and deep struck him. Yeah, yeah, boy. That's so, awesome. of course, when I deep struck him, what did he do? Deviate exactly out of range. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then was immediately basically paid the ultimate price. Karn runs out of the land raider mm-hmm. and goes and takes him down. <laughs> oh, it was Blood Angels vs. World Eaters. That's a yeah. good time. That's a damn good time. <laughs> it was it was awfully, you know, it was a little bloody, of course. And, and actually, the game went back and forth. And, and there's been some, there have been some significant changes between, now, I let me say between 7th edition and what we have now. I know there was some, like, erratas in between, you know, the original release of the rules and then, you know, before this new set came out. But there are some, like, distinct differences. And maybe we take a quick break. We'll have that that segment with Zach from Shadow's Edge, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit about this before going on to the hobby segment. We'll see you on a minute. FTN is brought to you by Discount Games Inc. Please visit them at www.discountgamesinc.com. And don't forget to ask Jay about ways to save even more on your hobby projects. Hey everybody, welcome to a very special Vendor Spotlight segment on Forge of the Narrative. My name is Paul. I'm joined by Zach Hightower. Zach, man, how are you doing? Doing well, yourself? Yeah, not too bad, man. I'm happy to have you on. You are from Shadows Edge Miniatures. And people have heard me talk about you before. uh, So really delighted to have you on to talk about this new project you have going on. It's great to be here. Well, let's tell us about it. So by the time people hear this, you have an active Kickstarter going on for some Hobby Earthworks basing and weathering powders. But it's a little bit more than that. So I guess first let me uh, preface this, if you don't mind, is saying that uh, people can find, you have products that are out right now, been out for a long time. Tufts and bases, like basing materials. So you're like a basing specialist i use your stuff i dig it you've got some flowers on your website that i use like for just squad mark i have different like crops of flowers on my sylvaneth and that's how i determine which unit of dryads is different than the other dry and so on and so forth like great stuff it does exactly what you want it to do so that's why i'm saying i'm delighted to talk to you because i imagine these new things are in the same vein yeah they are um we've been around for about six years and we started from one or two different little grass tufts and we have literally hundreds of options at this point and of different grass tufts and like you said bases we do scenic leaves and really just what we want to accomplish is become the one-stop basing shop and um the kickstarter that just launched on june 7th is just something we're going into the next stage of that um, uh, tell me about it so tell me about these these uh weathering powders and like i'm looking at it right now and it seemed like some really interesting colors and some great packaging and like a lot of thought went into this yeah, we've been, it's been a, a dream project of mine for a while now. Um, and we're just now at the place we have time to even really pull it together. And so it's twofold. You know, we do have the weathering, weathering powders, um, which can be used for all kinds of painting and washing and just 
myriad of uses, but um, one of the reasons why I really like using them here recently is actually in bases because you know get the dry powders, get them into those cracks and crannies of bases, and it just really they look more lifelike. You know, you get that dust in between flagstones, and it looks like you're actually you've got a model that's uh, walking across some ancient concrete that's seen a few dozen wars. It adds texture. It, it, it's got a sense, you know, depending on what you're using. I mean, they're called weathering powders. They can be for anything, like any type of use where you get, you want a little bit of texture and, and uh, you know, not just grit, but like organic life on the miniature. Yeah, yeah definitely. Like, so for example, I've got an urban, or one of our urban rubble bases that um, I use some browns and greens on the bases to simulate that old concrete look, but also took the browns up on the, to the feet of the miniature and it looks like the dust is, you know, getting picked up and tracked by that miniature as it's it's doing its thing. How do you so for anybody who may just be getting into it, how do you work with these? Like what's a what are some good ways to apply this stuff and and like what types of models would you use it on? Um really any kind of type of model. There's a bunch of different uses. The you can if it's just a display model that's not gonna be handled a lot, you can really just kind of apply it dry. Um, get a nice that nice powdered look to the what create the weathering um, but more likely if you are if it's seeing tabletop gameplay or it's going to be moved much at all um, you'll actually can either hit it with a little bit of a gentle varnish you know matte varnish gloss varnish um, or actually use any kind of fixer or um, any kind of paint thinner or solvent will also help adhere it to it the, where, right yeah. where you put it how do you put it on the model like with the paintbrush you, you yeah, yeah. You just Same tools? tools? You can just dip it out of a canister with a dry paintbrush and kind of push it around where you want it. And then if you use a varnish, it might move it a bit. But um, if you use a actual pigment fixer or thinner, it will actually do that little capillary action and drag it into the cracks and crevices. I've used a dropper before or just getting a drip off of the actual paintbrush. A paintbrush I use specifically for, you know, fixing weathers, uh, weathering powders and stuff. Yeah, that's dropper do great and yeah that's something you, you do want to have a separate usually beat up brush for working with them it's, it's just slightly different than than um i see more i'm just calling it out for if someone were to jump into this it's not as intimidating or as hard to do you just might want, want a different brush it. yeah <laughs> use your old brush uh, for this yes definitely so looking at the packaging uh, so looking at the packaging it does it seems like you get a lot in here so can you can you explain to me like well how big's the jar what's what's in there and yeah definitely um so we have part of the reason why i wanted to do weathering powders um is because i love i loved using them but most of the ones i found were in these tiny little jars that either a i would knock over which is a pain to clean up um or b it was just there wasn't a whole lot in there you, know, you may not be paying too terribly much for them but there's almost nothing in them so we've we've gone with two ounce jars which is 60 milliliters which is at least twice everything else on the market that i've seen if not more but um one of the things we we're really intentional about is we wanted a nice flat low to the ground jar that is very stable for clumsy people like myself who nice that you tend to knock that. things over <laughs> So um, there's there's a lot in there, and they're 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 heavy jars, and they're they're hard to knock over. Not impossible, but very difficult. Yeah, it's not a challenge. Not uh, not trying to challenge anyone on <laughs> doing this. Uh, it's like you get a wide range of colors in here too. So if someone is trying to do you know marble or limestone or, or rust or whatever, do you have solutions for that? Yeah, well, um, that was another thing we were wanted to do. Is we wanted like. I had sat down and decided, like, if there's a project, I wanted to be able to find a color and what we were releasing. I, but at the same time, we didn't want to release every color under the moon because if there's, you know, don't want to have a bunch of duplicates that just sit on someone's someone's shelf. 
So we have 19 colors in total. Um, one of them is a metallic gunmetal color for just adding some, some silver shine to things. Um, but we have three rust colors um, and then a, a wide range of browns and sand colors as well as grays. There's some greens in there for either um, simulating you know, growth and feuded corruption um, as well as there's a really bright bluish turquoise for um, doing that copper aging effect. Oh, very nice. So, yeah, we, and, and, and with that, for anyone who's used our tufts before, we have um, three different rocky colors of our tufts that have little, little rocks at the bottom of them. And um, we've matched um, those colors to a few of the weathering powders to help tie those in for anyone who uses those products as well. I, I like it that you've got a nice quantity of product in, in the jar. So, you know, if you wanted to do, let's say, a, an army's worth of basing, you probably have enough left over to do some to the display board or on tanks or, you know, something to kind of blend those all those themes together, create some some real visually stunning stuff. Yeah, definitely. And it's something I wanted to continue from our tough packs is because we, we used to call our packs army packs in that we wanted you to be able to base at least, a, you know, a decent sized army with our tufts and lets you go crazy, which looks good. I can good, confirm but... <laughs> that is true and that I have also gone crazy and needed more than one pack. <laughs> well, look, these blood angels ain't gonna base themselves, you know. <laughs> that, that's good to see. So tell me a little bit about the campaign itself. So do you have some like stretch goals planned? Where do you, like where do you where do you see this yeah, going? We, where do you see it expanding into? Yeah, we have some stretch goals planned. Um, obviously, the main priorities are the weathering powders and the texture paste we have. But um, some of the stretch goals are kind of minor things. But we also are going to we have a third texture paste that we may release if the stretch goals go high enough, and also some metallic weathering powders that we have in the stretch goals. Oh wow! Um, T- tell me about the uh, the paste. I don't think we've uh, really gotten there yet. Well, yeah. So in the main campaign, we have two different. Um, Textured basing paste. Um, we're calling it our earthworks. Um, one we're just calling dirt, and the other one we're calling mud. Both come in six colors each. Um, there's also some matching to our rocky tufts in there as well. But um, the dirt is kind of a grainy, gritty, just kind of texture that you can um, just pull out with a popsicle stick or old paintbrush or an actual, you know, dental pick or something, and smear over a base or diorama or whatever, and even get it up on the feed or tread of your miniatures and just add some of that three-dimensionality to it um, without much effort. Um, and the mud is very similar, just more of a goopy, grimy substance that, uh, well, it really does just looks like, you know, trudging through mud. When it dries, do you see like uh, like the like the mud and like something you'd see in the backyard kind of start to yeah, come yeah, to life? Um, yeah, it looks really good, especially if like you pull it up on a hoof. I've got a minotaur that I um, splashed a little bit on the hoof before it dried and actually kind of pushed it down in the mud a bit. And it really lo- looks like it's trudging through some semi-dried mud on its way to slaughter. Dig that. Did you, did you design these like to in mind to work with your other products? Like I know you, 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 have, you have tufts and I mentioned you have grass, flowers, rocks, rocks and grass. I mean, there's like a combination of things that, uh, you know, we're pretty well thought out as well. Some bases, you know, do these... Do these fit into your system? Yeah, they do. Um, so they don't work as well with our scenic resin bases. They're kind of a either or option typically. I mean, you could probably come up with some scenarios, but um, but they work really well with our tufts and our leaves, our scenic leaves, because um, even when when the uh, mud and stuff is still still wet, you can really press the tufts down into it, so it looks like they're growing out of it. And we do have them, you know, you mentioned the rocks. We have our, our rocky tufts that have those rocks at the base of them. You peel them off, you stick them in. And if you match the colors, they're they're almost an identical match. So it looks like the, it's going to be almost the exact same color to where it's not going to look out of place if you want to put those rocky tufts on your base. 
I'm digging. They're going to they're going to be a, a uniform right out of the gate. Well, that's cool. Well, people can find this one Kickstarter. I'll put a link in the show notes in case people want to check it out. And as well, you know, I kind of encourage them to go check out what your your other offerings are right now. Well, that'll be great. Yeah, if they're not familiar with what you do, so this is stuff that I've talked about on the show before, and I and I really like using this stuff. Zach, so it has been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, it's great to talk to you, and thank you so much for having us on the show. Yeah, hopefully we, uh, we can check in to see how, see how the campaign is going, maybe uh, follow up with you again after it's all already wrapped up. That sounds great. Dude, have a great one. I wish you a bunch of success. We'll talk real soon. Thanks so much. You're listening to Forge the Narrative. Hey everybody, we are back. Thanks for checking out our sponsors and the vendor segment, Shadow's Edge. You will not be disappointed. So Horus Heresy, we're going to talk a little bit about the game. Then we're going to do like a spoiler-free book. I was going to say book report, but really just gush about some of the things that we... (laughs) (laughs) we're reading in the lore right now and uh, want to make sure people check out if they haven't already, but don't worry, not going to do any spoilers at all. We promise. I'm looking at you, Adam. Hey, leave me alone. It's only been like six or seven times. I'm giving you the eyeball. Be on your best behavior. There there, there should be like some type of, you know, this is actually interesting. So I think that you're, you're always supposed to refer to like literary literary characters or characters in film or whatever as always is the present so they're never like not the present i think that makes sense huh what? I was going to say, there needs to be some length of time, you know, that we can talk about books, but there's always some oh, point that no. someone hasn't read it. And to them, that character is that, you know, those things are happening right now. And so we can't, you know, we're going to strive to always not throw out spoilers. Agreed. But I also want to talk about it so people know about it if they if they don't yet. So how do, how do they get it? Uh, but before that, in the Horus Heresy game itself, there's this new concept. Well, at least for this is reactions. So reactions are things that players can do in every phase. And some of them are, I mean, it's pretty pretty powerful stuff. Uh, It's pretty awesome given the previews they've given us. I mean, I I think that this is what puts us at, I mean, we are so close to the something along the lines of I go, you go, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there are people that dread the, the, uh, I mean, you'll get the 40k community and and their their I won't say distaste because I, that's not the right word, but you know, regarding Overwatch and things like that, um, I think this reaction concept is awesome. I think that it's perfect. I think that it gives the the dynamic aspect of you can't just do whatever you want for your movement, shooting, and, and melee. You have to actually deal with responses from the characters, and it gives a back mm. and forth that I think is really powerful. So the, yeah, the interesting said. Yeah, the interesting thing here is that you get to you get a, a, a an a, allotment of reaction points essentially, and most of the time it's one, but you can use that one in every phase. So movement, psychic, shooting phase, or whatever. If you have a special rule that increases your allotment to say two, then you then get to make two reactions in every phase. Those rules seem to be kind of hard to come by. Uh, I did not play with one. Uh, We each had one reaction that we could use per phase. There is also another caveat that nothing can take you above three. You can only use a maximum of three reactions uh, per phase. But that seems that seems like a lot, if you ask mm. me. I, and we didn't we didn't really min max to try to find a way to, to get that, but that'd be something to be on the lookout for. So there are core reactions, reactions that anyone can do, and then there are army sp- specific reactions. Uh, that, I love this concept, by the way. 
for forever, it's always felt kind of awkward when you can go a whole turn without your opponent throwing a dice or having any reason to be at the table, for lack of a, a better way. Like, I've I've played games of, I think, 7th edition, especially when I was playing guard, where my opponent could just walk away for 20 minutes, not miss anything, come back, roll some save dice, walk away for another 20 minutes, come back, and then it's their turn. And I just don't, I don't like that. I don't like the aspect about some games... Yeah, well, that's what they, they kind of capture it beautifully in Sigmar too. Is that it's not the, it's not I got you go, but you definitely get to participate in your opponent's turn a bit. Yeah, I would say, like, that is a one thing that I miss from 40k is like, okay, you go ahead and move all your guys, and I'm gonna go get like a snack or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> because you can't, like, you can do that in Age of Sigmar, but then you'd be missing out on one of the best command abilities ever, which is redeploy, right? So if anything comes into nine inches of your unit, you can pay one command point and then you can move d6 inches away and it's so powerful that it keeps you engaged in the entire movement phase which is awesome but i mean sometimes it is nice to go get a snack yeah the snack phase <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> the snack phase yeah i mean I, I i can see that i i can understand i just think that the pacing when we talk about tactical scenarios we talk about anything right like that so we have this thing where the enemy gets a vote and it's not just I go, then I go, then I go, then I go. In like actual literal military wargaming, in almost all cases, you determine who has the initiative in the scenario, and then it's a what's the initial set, and then it's I go, so I have my action, you have your reaction, and then I have a counteraction. And so this this whole concept of being able to react every in, in all the phases, I think, is is massive in the regards of the tactical scenario and the gameplay. I, I can understand exactly what you're talking about, Tanya, in regards of the, the pacing of a game where you're you you are, you know, you want to be able to enjoy yourself. You want to be able to take time and let the, the players watch it to a certain extent and, and go back and forth. But I also think that in some of the cases of of being able to uh, have agency, like, you know, you, you've always in, in theory hammer, right? Like, well, I wouldn't just walk into that trap or I would do this or I would have this response. This is actually giving and there's different reactions by different armies and so the codex responses of the different factions and what they have available to them i I think is really exciting from some of the things that we've seen from the the warhammer community stuff for each of the different legions are there any like universal reactions or is it all just like from your faction no they call them the core reactions and they're i mean there's a couple in each phase like as for instance advance or withdrawal you can do in the movement phase return fire or evade which gives you shred it's shrouded basically like an ignore injury uh on a certain on a five plus and then in the assault phase there's overwatch and hold the line but then the army specifics they seem to all have something special they can do as well and some of them i mean like if you haven't already seen it i, I think it was the the alpha legion um <laughs> i mean first of all they've already got built in uh, they always count as like two inches away from wherever they are. So like, no matter what, if you measure range and you need 12 inches and they're 11 inches away, like physically, they actually count as being 13 inches away. Uh, but it, right. Like that's just silly. 
and, and then there's other reactions they have, like the ability to just move out of. I think it's the Raven Guard that have a reaction that just allows them to. You shoot at them, they, they then move, make a normal move as their reaction. And if in that move they are now out of range, then the unit that decided to shoot no longer gets to shoot anymore. That's so That's, powerful. It's awesome. I think it's once. A, did I, I think I read the Dark Angels one as being once per game. No, Blood Angels one. is once per battle as well. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of a lot of these crazy uber powerful ones, you'll get to. Like, you have to pick your spot. You have to pick your moment where it's going to make the most impact, try and change the flow of the game, and then, yeah, ex- like, you know, execute your Legion-specific spicy spicy bit, which I think's awesome. I mean, if these things were every turn, it would be a bit too much. But um, as a once-per-game thing, with maybe, you know, you get some... Maybe down the track, they release a... Everyone gets a, a second one or or whatnot. But, but um, it's definitely something the, to, to... They can move in, yeah. moving in and out of the game. You know, that's... The, the, yeah, the blueprint for a very ext- exciting mechanic is there, uh, and I heartily endorse everything about this. A lot of the Heresy players are like, no, they're bringing stratagems to Heresy, and um, whilst it's it's a similar mechanic, I think the CP and the stratagem usage in 40k has become a lot of what makes or breaks an army. I don't think the reactions are going to make or break the army. It's going to be the usage of them. It's going to be how the difference between two players having the same core ones and then one spicy um legion specific one and then doing them at the perfect timings in the perfect combinations it's it yeah i feel like i'm going to place a a really well-versed heresy player at some point and they're going to we're going to have equally strength armies and they're going to school me because they're going to like tap dance on my head with reactions in the perfect place (laughs) (laughs) they figured out that rule to get them two reactions and then they're evading all over the place and uh yeah exactly returning fire like turn five, they take an objective off me and I can't get it back. And then the game's over. And I'm like, oh, wow, you just won the game by holding your nerve. Like, fantastic. Yeah. Return fire is cool. You basically just get to shoot. Uh, vehicles can only fire defensive weapons, though. So you you're, got to remember your old terminology. I think they're weapons yeah, that are so, strength five and below. Mm, so not your main gun, essentially, is, what I, is, is the way I used to read that. Yeah, yeah. So I had a good time. It really was. It was a back and forth game. Uh, I did I did not have a mid-max list. But my opponent didn't either. You know, we're basically just kind of, you know, rolling well, with something that seemed fun. Best thing about a new edition, we don't even know what that is. Min max, <laughs> no one's figured it out yet. So just enjoy, play whatever you want. I probably would have had at least a power fist or two in the army just to. <laughs> if I could do it, do it over. Yeah, just, um, to, to, just to make it interesting. I wouldn't have yeah. been running around with my six inch melted pistols hoping to get through a Spartan. <laughs> like as a, I have some, I've got some um, very close friends of mine. A lot of them taught me how to paint who um, they play heresy at a high level, but they, they wouldn't call themselves competitive. Uh, the the concept of competitive horror heresy is like anathema to a lot of heresy players, but these are people who play heresy a lot. They're well-versed. They know what's, what's strong. Um, and they would talk about like rocking up to the table and uh, across them, they see a Spartan and two Leviathans and being like, yeah, I can't kill that. <laughs> Just like shaking their head being like, yeah, it's going to be a rough time. Um, and then, you know, inside the Spartans, 10 Terminators with a, a, a Praetor with, uh, instant death and, you know, a bunch of chain fists. And they're like, yeah, nah, 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 this is going to be rough. It was very satisfying when I did uh, get the, the Terminators into combat with, you know, I had nine Terminators with lightning claws, you know? Yeah, one thing I will say there there's, that we've lost in like 40k recently is the satisfaction of popping a big beastie, you know? Like, I remember, uh, I think it was maybe 6th edition or um, maybe maybe it was 
maybe it was mid eighth edition even. No, no, it was seventh edition. When you got when you popped somebody's like one knight in their army, or in heresy when you pop someone's Spartan or you you knock down their fire raptor or whatever, you just like get this like oomph of like, you know, absolutely freaking worth it. You can demolish me now and I still feel like a winner because you like comp- you like you climbed your own personal little mountain. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's something we've lost in forty K. But uh, well, Spartans are still, you know, I, I don't know if they'll be meta-defining. I know they have been used to see a lot of Spartans in the uh, in the old thing, but I know they'll be used more because it's a beautiful kit and it's in this box. So. Well, it's, well, especially well in Australia, I can say it's going to be freaking everywhere because it doesn't have a, you know, I could buy a car price tag on it from Forge World, unfortunately. <laughs> Thank you, Forge World. Uh, they're going to be everywhere. Like Spartans are such a cool unit i want to see them in 40k as well they're so freaking amazingly awesome um so in i'm not sure i'll have to deep dive it but the build in 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 heresy 1.0 was you had it flare shielded Mm -hmm. um which which meant you never got armor bane as in the old melter rule because you know if people don't remember how melter used to work um in 7th edition and in heresy so melter was just like your strength eight ap um ap1 um which meant ap good it's not ap bad like it is in 40k that's ap good as in it goes through anything any any armor save you only get your invuln doesn't matter and then you'd roll in the damage table to see what the effect of the the melter going through the armor was and then you'd get was it roll two dice pick the highest or was it roll with a plus two i think it was a roll with a plus two on the the modifier of armor bane yeah, well anything, there's a penetrate and a you know you either penetrate or didn't and yeah. then you yeah yeah and so then you would the flare shield meant you never got any pluses to your melter and so the spartan was just like one of the hardest nuts to crack um was so it still is hard to kill. Absolutely. yeah it's still yeah <laughs> No power fist, but also like you had, um, you could. There were things like a bolter shooting at a rhino, a fr- the front arc of a rhino couldn't hurt it because it was front armor eleven, and your bolter was strength four. That's right. And I can tell you, I played a game with um, Dark Angels into Renegade Knights on the weekend, and I was picking up, I was picking up war dogs with bolt guns. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, tactical doctrine. We can kill these. We can kill uh, these critters. But, 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 but. mentality and was uh, disappointed. <laughs> In myself. <laughs> what, you feel like you should have known better? I should have known better. I did. I know. Cause I, not like I didn't play this rule set. I know what's up. Just, uh, yeah. You know? Went into it. I had the I had the, the red thirst, though. I'm like, oh, man. Got all these lightning claws. Got all these assault marines. Like, I'm, let's go for it. Yeah. I mean, it, I do love that everything can hurt everything from a playability point of view. But my God, does it, like, just stomp on your um, immersion at times. Yeah, um, fair enough. Yeah, it was, it was. Those Terminators were never getting through that lane raider. Mm. <laughs> oh well more to come on this and uh you know it'd be something fun to talk about for future episodes you know especially as we you know start to put our armies together and get some more games in i Let's am talk about these books. Uh, i'm in the process of painting some cataphractic termies at the moment I'll, I'll chuck some picks up do it yeah so these books how you know how often does the lore lead us to like to cool army projects very often i think you know it's probably each of the armies we play we have some probably some lore to back it up as to, as to why but i just no spoilers but i just finished listening to penitent by dan mm-hmm. Abbott, and i jumped into the series not knowing what to expect and i felt like it was definitely going somewhere with pariah pariah was the first one, right as far as the of the back one yeah series yeah and but i wasn't sure where it was going and when it when it got to the second book i couldn't turn it off like it was it was that uh like adrenaline filled awesome yeah, like all the characters all the twists and turns you don't see them coming until you do and then when you see them coming and when you finally put it together, it's almost like you're on the edge of your seat, not wanting to be right. 
<laughs> Oof, that's awesome. And then, you know, and then when you when you either confirmed or denied, you have some type of emotional response. So I think that's a mark of a good book. Oh, I think that's, yeah, I think that's a mark of an amazing book. I quite often get that with Dan Abnett stuff, though. He does. He does a great job of pulling you, pulling you through to the story that, um, I mean, you, you're quite clearly being led somewhere. And, uh, and then it, you know, we, we had joked in the, in the break about cliffhangers. Um, I, I feel like he, he most definitely pushes you off the cliff. Yeah. It's not just, you're not hanging anywhere. You get pushed off that cliff and I'm simply falling until I get to the next book. That's awesome. What a great, amazing way of describing it. And we don't know when the um, book's coming out. That's the worst bit of reading books. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm also experiencing something similar. I've j- I literally just finished Warhawk um, yesterday. Dubbing is that that's the latest book in the Siege of Terror. Is is Wrath of Magnus in the linear, or is it a, or is it like a offshoot book? I, I think it's outside of the Siege of Terror timeline. I think all the okay. Primark books are outside the. I oh, know Wrath of Magnus is it. I think it's a Siege of Terror book, but I'm not sure it's one of the main Siege of Terror books. Like Sons of the Selenar, I don't think it's a main book. Like when I look up when I look up the Siege of Terror Black Book uh, G Dub site, it's it doesn't go from Warhawk to Wrath of Magnus. Wrath of Magnus isn't even in the 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 little scroll board at the bottom. It goes you know Solar War whatever whatever whatever. Um, but Warhawk was amazing. So everything I felt like I so uh, those of you who remember about a month ago maybe maybe it was five weeks ago I was on talking about my feelings on Mortis. Um, and I love that I love that I get to do, do this like every month. I get to come on and give my little book report. I'm trying to force the other members of this podcast to do the same. Um, and but Warhawk was amazing. Warhawk was really, really good. Some really ingenious um, things happened that allowed. Um, well, it's called Warhawk, so you know it's about it's Jagatai centric, um, which was good because I felt like Jag- Jagatai was something of a bit player up until this point. He he was impactful, he was present, he was doing lots of cool stuff, but the story was never about what he was up to. He was always there contributing, but never the focal point. So it was really nice to see a bunch of the Sons of Chagoras just have their kind of say in the siege and have mm-hmm. their bit to play. And so this thing happens, this big amazing thing that's been kind of like Jagatai's been lining up since it's like since books passed. Like in three or four books ago, Jagatai was like, I'm gonna do this thing. And everyone's like, please don't try and do this thing. He's like, I'm gonna do it. And, <laughs> and then he goes and does it and was like, oh no. Oh Jagatai, why, why, why? And then he pulls it off and was like, Jagatai, you rock. And that's pretty much the journey I went on. Because <laughs> I was like like the whole time you can't not root for uh, the white scars. They're written in such a way that you just they're just like your your mate. They're just like your, your um in in Australia we call them a larrikin. Like they're they're fun fueled. They're they're there to have a good time, and they'll find their fun where they do. They'll find their enjoyment where they do because they always talk about laughing and death, um, you know, and and the enjoyment, the thrill of the hunt, the thrill of speed, and the excitement of battle. Um, and they kind of take, kind of suck you in and take you along with you, with them. And then what I felt like I missed out in Mortis was that's a great Mortis. way of describing. It. I don't know that I've heard it described that way before about uh, specifically about wise cars, but. Yeah. This well, it's once <laughs> legit. I, I was reading. I'm like, do I have to collect white scars now? Do I just have to? Like, because I felt so, I felt such kinship with the way that they were experiencing this. But then I got the alternate uh, experience as well, which is felt like what I what I was missing. What I really wanted out of Mortis was the traitor perspective of what was happening. Um, cause you got a little bit of it at the start. Um, it was, it was essentially, 
um, some intercourse discourse between um, Mortarian and the Death Guard, Iron Warriors, um, and to a lesser extent, uh, the Sons of Horus. And then that kind of ended. That was it. Like the first, there was no pretty much trader perspective apart from in the first like couple of chapters. And I loved the dichotomy of seeing both parts of this battle unfold all the way through the siege until I got to Mortis, where I just felt like, ah, I just don't get to see that perspective in this book. And it really bothered me. I felt like I felt the loss of it. I felt like I'd been robbed of half the story um, because we got a lot of different um, imperial perspectives but not one consistent renegade uh, trader perspective Um, Warhawk gave me that in spades Um, it gave me like a perspective of uh, was it, I think it's Moloch Mo, uh, Morag, um, the emissary of the Death Guard, taking you on his journey as he sees what his legion has become, trying to discern the motivations and the meanings and how they've changed. Because I don't know if anybody, this isn't a spoiler at all, but the Death Guard that leave on their journey to Terra and the Death Guard that show up at Terra, two very different entities, extremely different. They went through a fundamental change in the warp on the way, and uh, seeing the That's Death Guard intercourse coming to terms with that and what they experienced i haven't felt that i haven't felt like that was a personal experience before but it felt like a personal experience as akin it did in uh was it first heretic when i felt like i was going through the warp changes with my beautiful boy what's his name first of the <laughs> the galva brack god uh no, uh, Argotal. Argotal. Everyone's everyone's secret traitor heartthrob, Argotal. Just such a good dude doing such horrible things. Um, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, I felt like I experienced his time in the Eye of Terror. Like he was famished and stranded and like desperate. And it was really cool uh, to go on that journey with the Death Guard as well. I'm very happy they, they wrote that, that into here as well because I know it was written elsewhere. Warhawk, te- uh, literally like 8, 9 out of 10 was almost... Almost perfection. I loved it so much. Sweet. Who's going to follow that? Who's who's brave enough to follow that? <laughs> I still think Paul's uh, revelation through Penitent was better. Sorry. Oh. I You're mean, I give talk. you, I give you a, a, a B plus for effort, Adam. I, I thought it was really good. I mean, <laughs> All right. Well, you really your, laid your, it into. Your, I have not, turn. I've not caught your up turn. to you, the Siege of Terror. And so, I mean, I'm excited after hearing it. Well, maybe I'll give it a shot. So I'm reading through the Horus Heresy. I've mentioned it a few times. So I'm way, way far behind. Um, and right now I am at the Outcast Dead by Graham McNeil. And I'm over halfway done it. And we were sort of talking before the show and a lot of the books that many people say that they don't like in the Horus Heresy series I end I end up liking very much because um I like a lot of the stories that involve regular humans I like a lot of the stories that don't take place on the front lines and so far, Outcast Dead is giving me both of those. I really enjoy seeing the human element of how people who don't have superhuman bodies and don't have superhuman minds, how they deal with all of these really shocking and conflicting things that um, that they were never told about, let alone given ways to deal with, right? Like, um, there's a astropath in this in this one book who has experienced horrible things in the warp and getting to see how much damage that that has done to this poor soul and and the journey that he is on to overcome that damage is it's really interesting and it sort of sets the scope for what the warp really is 
Um, and, and so I'm really enjoying that human element that Graham McNeil is writing into this, this story. There's also a lot of human element in the space Marines that you see in this book as well. Um, so I'm really, I, any time that the space Marines are given their own really well thought out personalities, I am here for it. I, I really enjoy that aspect. It is a good book. That's one of those that, that I like where it goes and the journey that you're on at the same time. And it when that book came out, there's some things in there that I think no one expected. And I'm curious, after you get through it, what your impression is of that book. So we'll have to revisit this topic. All right. Give me like four days and I'll be done it. <laughs> no rush. So uh, savor these things if you if you if you want to, but uh, it is definitely one that like when you're it, it is also one of those things when when there's a couple of reveals that it you kind of like open your eyes a little bit. Well, we'll see. I don't want to I don't want to build it up more than it might be because you might feel differently when you read it. Maybe we'll yeah. we'll have to revisit it and uh, I'll have to try and and talk about it with no spoilers. There you go. I think we'll try to revisit this uh, book report segment here at least every three or four weeks. So you're on first next time, Red. Red, Red, you're on notice. You're you're going first next time. I can't wait. I mean, that'd be great. PowerPoint presentations, like, you know. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, and more opportunities for you to catch up there. So <laughs> I thought you just said you were by. What, what was the last book you read? Details, right. details. So I'm I'm actually reading uh, the Constantine Valdor book right now. Oof, that's on the list. It's, Is it any good? Oh, uh, it's it's yes. It, it goes his back solo into book, kind of uh, birth of the empire. Is it with your? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When what's when's the setting? Like when does it take place? I mean, it's it's. It has it has some history built into it. It's kind of I don't want to say it's like the Primark books because it's not as in depth, but it does have some background to it, and it does. Uh, you know, I can't go into too much of what occurs, but it does lay out some background to it. Uh, I think it's great. I think that it's got some. You know, the the it doesn't all have to be Istvan three and and five mm. and and the the different crusade aspects or even Ultramar. But I, I do think that there's some really great aspects. You know, we were talking about that. We're looking at the different legions and uh, a good friend of mine is, is is working on some word bearers. And I mean, nobody likes Erebus, right? We just talked about how good Argyll Tall is. I can't remember the name of the sniper that's that's in the story as well. The, sure, the word bearers. Yeah, yeah. He's, I mean, on point. Some great material from the word bearers. But when you think about it, right, the Ultramarines were the largest uh, legion even then. Yep. And the word bearers, you talk about strategic efforts um, you know, the push towards the, the solar segmentum word bears ability to actually lock down uh, Ultramar and keep the Ultramarines contained while also still participating in the Siege of Terror is, is a huge strategic capability that they were able to pull off. Mm. Um, and, and so I know, like, I mean, with everything else going on that sitting here talking about this seems a little silly, but at the same time, it, it's it's relatively commendable and I, I can appreciate that from the what reading about it and everything like that. It, it was actually a pretty big deal for them to be able to pull something off like that. And just going through all the different books, my, my point being like there's other aspects to this versus just the uh, I'm not sure, Tanya, I can get away with personally using the term bolter porn, but I get where you're going with that. Yeah. Well, the time I, period. So as far as like the birth, the it does take a little unification more. 
type time period stuff. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, there's a character in the in the last couple of books that I think that was introduced in Mortis. Um, there's a there's a guy in in prison in Mortis, um, and he is touted to be. And this isn't going to give anything away. Um, it might even make it more interesting. He's touted to be one of the last like old kings from you know pre unification, and he's not what you expect. Like he's not some you know warlord in, on his you know ready barbarian techno barbarian. He's like a a gene crafting scientist, and he's one of the old lords of uh, lords of old night. And um, he's actually, he's actually quite an interesting character. If a little, if a little frustrating, um, and so, but I love any of those glimpses, those little, little Easter eggs, those little bits they give us of like the time before, um, because that's one of the things. That's one of the reasons I play Dark Angels because I like the lineage that they have. I like that they have a story that stretches back as far as the fluff goes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's that kind of stuff, and even just all the little things that get built in um, the the material from say like uh, you know they they talked about it the sons of Horus uh, and the Warhammer community piece and talking about the book vengeful spirit um mm. I, I think that was one of the, the really great ones as far as peeling back the curtain on some of the stuff that was going on well that that was one of the things the first three books did so well right like we've like you fell in love with Loken and, uh, and and the journey and the decline and like you couldn't help but feel almost feel the charisma of Horus through the pages of like it just the way everyone reacted to him and you start to understand how something this crazy could actually unfold and happen. Um, but really, like it, that, I think that was the, the the those first three books really gave us the insight because it was to Tanya's point there were so many basic humans um, in those first three books, right? Because it was. You were following the remembrances just as much as you were following the Sons of Horus. And so it allowed us to step into this story of gods and demons and demigods as a regular person and not have to try and put ourselves in the shoes of things that we've got no frame of reference for. So very clever. I mean, if you think about it, there has to be a pretty strong human contingent, at least in the beginning of the Horus Heresy, because the Lectitio Divinatus is not going to have any weight at all unless humans embrace it as theirs, Mm. if you know what I mean. And And that is a huge part of the Horus Heresy in the beginning and like as i'm going along you just sort of hear whispers of it and i i i hope it comes to a crescendo at the end of the at the end of the series itself because i i want to know more about this book like obviously i know some things about it just because there's memes and stuff that give away spoilers so i know a little bit about it but i just i hope that you just get little snippets here and there and the 50 books in between and then you get more by like the last book so yeah it is it is a constant undercurrent isn't it like um the push and pull of religion, of dogma, of all that stuff, and yeah, and, and through all of it, that book pops up. The so essentially that's the the book of freaking uh, Logar, where he's he's calling for the worship of the emperor. One of the reasons uh, that the emperor decided to blow up a planet <laughs> and uh, what? So no, a city, a city, it's just Lucaria. a city, just yeah, yeah. just Calm a down. city. It's he's fine. done worse things. It's, it's fine. fine. I'm sure there was a planet in there somewhere. It's okay. It I got jotted y'all, down. You're going to get what you want with those uh, references. I think. <laughs> I think. Oh, absolutely. Like, um, I'm so yeah. At the, by the end of Warhawk, you can start to see how the Imperium became the Imperium of the 41st millennium. Like, it's really you're starting to understand when whenever when you when you push people when you push humans so far and they have to just keep finding reasons to fight back um 
there's only so many places, only so many things you can believe in that will give you the courage to face what Horace was packing, you know, at the siege. <laughs> We're going to wrap this up. That's uh, It's been a cool show. I appreciate y'all jumping through the topics with us. And I uh, want to know what you're, uh, you know, if you're playing Horace Hearsey, yeah, what Legion you have uh, dedicated yourself to. Uh, Hobby segment will we'll be back next week. Uh, this weekend, when you're hearing this show, uh, tune in live to coverage from the San Diego Open on the Warhammer Twitch stream. You might see some familiar faces there. It's going to be a really interesting run, man. There's a, there's a lot lot spicier competitive meta out there than people uh, might 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 see or might believe. And I I do think it's uh it's well it's not well I don't think it's anyone's game at the moment. There's certainly a lot more interesting things going on than there has been kind of for the past 12 months. Like the spice starts now. It's going to be really exciting. We'll see. We'll see what turns up. But all right, folks, we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. See ya. scan is clear. I think they're gone for now.